Some comfortable, isn't it, boys? Headphones in, listening to a podcast about silliness as you commute to work or clean your house or whatever it is you're doing. We're all plugged in and connected to our global village. We scroll through the socials, run out to the shop because we forgot to buy bread or we're in need of a drop of Pepsi, and then back to the couch to find the latest bingeable show on one of the many, many streaming services. It's safe and comfortable. I like it. But not everyone lives this way. In this episode, we're going to tell you a couple of stories of people who are out there just beyond where most of us live, and their stories are some weird. Welcome to the Some Weird Podcast, a podcast about strange and unusual stories told by us, a sister and brother team hailing from the island of Newfoundland. I am your co-host, Chrissy. And I'm your co-host, Barry. In this episode, we are going to present a couple of stories of people living extremely off the grid. First, I'm going to tell you about a couple of weird green kids that were discovered in a small English village. Then I'm going to tell you about some feral boys from right here in Canada, the BC Bush Boys. Let's get it on the go. Sometime in the early 12th century, a couple of lost children were found in a small English village. They were lost and confused, but the good people of the village took them in and cared for them, despite the burning questions of, who were they? Where did they come from? And weirdest of all, why was their skin green? Let's start with the where of it all. They found a bunch of green kids? Not a bunch, just two. Was Captain Kirk there saying, I'm going to have intercourse with you? <laughs> no, no, he was not. So this all took place in the village of Woolpit. Woolpit is a small village in Suffolk County, England, and has about 2,000 people today. But back in the time of this story, the population was probably considerably less. Coming from a province which is kind of known for strange-sounding town names like Joe Bat's Arm and everyone's favorite Dildo, I was interested in the origins of the name Woolpit. Woolpit is actually derived from the Old English for wolf pit, meaning a pit in which to trap wolves. Apparently, the residents dug these pits around the village to catch wolves who would wander into their space to steal their livestock and chickens and whatever. And this issue was big enough and central enough to their lifestyle that they had to name the whole village after it, Wolf Pit. And later became Wolf Pit. And in case our listeners do reach out to us about this, I'll answer it right here. Yes, Dildo is really the name of a town in Newfoundland. They have an excellent microbrewery there. No, it's not named after that kind of dildo. It's actually not 100% known, but when it was being used by European fishermen and, and whalers as far back as the early 1700s, the term dildo was used for any kind of cylindrical item, not just sex toys that get your minds out of the gutter. Nobody really knows where the name dildo comes from, right? No, I've never looked into the origins and I'm not really sure, but uh, have you ever been to the brewery? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was there uh, the last time I was in Newfoundland, which was 2019, pre-COVID. Oh, okay. Yeah, my husband walks around New Jersey with Dildo Brewing Company uh, t-shirt. Good. Do you like the beer at the Dildo one? Or I, I think it brings in a lot of tourists just because of the name itself. Well, the name plus the whole Jimmy Kimmel thing certainly made it big, but uh, I do like the beer. Microbreweries. That's the story of Dildo. But now we're going to get back to the story of these green children. So one fine day when some of the residents of Wolf Pit were out checking the wolf pits, they were shocked to find not a poor trapped wolf who was probably just trying to feed her little wolf family, but a pair of strange young children, an older girl and a younger boy. Not unlike us. 
but we're not green. <laughs> no children were missing, to the best of their knowledge, so this was indeed a mystery, but things were about to get even weirder. The wolf pit checkers pulled the pair of children out of the trap, only to be shocked at their distinctly green skin. This was not a pale hue or trick of the light, or even stains from grass or something like that. These were mystery wolf pit children with green skin. When I think of green skin, the first thing that immediately comes to mind, V. You really go to the V well a lot in this I show. I do. Big on the V, which, as we've discussed, was on when I was like seven years old. Yes. So I definitely should have been watching V. But uh, anyway, for anyone who doesn't know, this was a miniseries that came out in the 80s. And it was about these aliens who were tending to be nice, but they actually wanted to take over the earth. And they looked like humans, but when you ripped off their skin, they were green underneath. All right, let's go back to these green kids. Nothing could really top their bizarre color, but there were other strange things about the children as well. Their clothes were unlike anything the villagers had ever seen, and they spoke a language that the villagers had never heard. Nevertheless, these were still seemingly lost children, so they took them home to figure out what to do next. Sure, you poor youngsters must be starved, said some old man, probably. Fortunately, this was the harvest season, so food was more available than it might have been had the children been discovered in the wolf pit in the winter. So the first order of business was to get something for these youngsters to eat. The green children were probably offered all kinds of medieval staples. Gruel, some kind of rough bread probably, root vegetables. Mead. Mutton. Mutton. (laughs) Meat and mead. I actually like mead. What is mead? Mead is like a honey wine. I thought it was like a beer, but yeah. Or maybe it's like a honey beer. I know when you go to medieval times, uh, I don't know if you've ever gone to one of those. Yeah, I I went to the one in Toronto. Okay, yeah, yeah, they're fun. When I went to medieval times, I got mead to drink. But these kids would not eat any of these seemingly normal foods. And it was almost like they were unable to comprehend that this was even something that one would eat. Like they didn't know what the hell it was. Then by chance, they were offered green beans, which they ate with fervor. Since the people of Woolpit seemed to have no way of finding out where to even start looking for the home of these children, they did what people do, and they took them in as one of their own. They were baptized, and they went to live in the household of Richard de Calne. I have no idea if I said that correctly, but here's a side note. In the Doctor Who universe, this is the same name of a character who, according to TARDIS.Fandom.com, was a 12th century English squire who was responsible for the villages in East Anglia. And when the Lamprey children entered their universe, they were brought to him and he took care of them for several weeks. So the parallel to the story in Doctor Who and the story of the green children of Woolpit is pretty clear and it proves how awesome the writers of Doctor Who are. So the green kids are living in Woolpit and they're merging into the society there. They even start eating some foods other than the raw green beans. And eventually they lose that green color in their skin. Oh, really? Yeah, they turn like a normal skin tone. Unfortunately, the boy who was said to have been sickly wasn't as able to adjust as the girl. And he ended up passing away. The girl thrived. She was given the name Agnes And she eventually learned English. And then, of course, once her English was good enough, what do you think the people wanted to know? Where the hell did you come from? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Right? So this was her version of her origin story. She and her brother came from a land on the other side of the water called St. Martin's Land. They were Christians, 
but there were a lot of differences. That was pretty much the only similarity between their two uh, cultures or two towns, I guess. Where they came from in St. Martin's Land, everyone and everything there was green. They did get some sunlight, but it was never brighter than twilight. And on the day that she and her brother were found, they had been tending their father's flock of seagulls, I'm guessing, (laughs) when they became mesmerized by the most beautiful sound, and so they followed it. The next thing they knew, they were lost and stuck in a wolf pit and were rescued by a bunch of alarmingly pale-skinned people. The fairies. Man, you're reading my mind here. Yeah. That's exactly what it sounds like, right? That's exactly what it sounds like. And the woods got lost, followed the Mm -hmm. sounds. Mm -hmm. It's like reverse fairies. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Apparently that story was good enough, and they're like, okay, green people from a magic land, case closed. Sounds perfect. Very good. So they went on. Eventually, Agnes married a man from a village 40 kilometers away, or in today's terms, two towns over. And their descendants uh, are still in the area somewhere, but none of them have green skin. So how do we know this story? The story is actually written in two different medieval accounts. One is by Ralph of Coggeshall. And the other was from William, William of Newborough. Both accounts had the same basic details. Green kids and wool put. Weird clothes, weird language, only ate green beans at first. Started eating normal stuff, got ungreened. The boy died. The girl learned English and told her story. <laughs> I could have just done my story like that. Here's a, a question. It sounds really fantastical, right? But if it was just a legend or a fairy tale, then why would these authors included in their works. There's probably hundreds of stories that weren't written down. Why was this one included? Right? Yeah. There's two main theories. One, this is a regular ass folktale. And it was worth preserving it because it was part of that region's cultural heritage. Like the fairy stories get passed down. Makes sense. Yeah. And then the second theory is this was kind of a true story, but the facts were twisted and bent over time, which is equally believable, I guess. So if we look at the folktale theory of it, stories of underground or parallel world dwellers are prevalent through all the cultures. So we're familiar, like you brought up already, with the stories of the fairies in Newfoundland. And they were transported primarily to our province via Ireland and southwest England. But folktales centered around these wee folk are prevalent throughout Ireland and the UK and in other cultures throughout the world as well. So the green children of Woolput may have been a reverse changeling story. Instead of evil fairies stealing a perfectly healthy human baby and taking it to an underground fairy world to, I think you said, what do they do with them? Eat them? (laughs) We didn't know. But the nearly human green beings were taken in by benevolent members of human world without the need for kidnapping. There wasn't enough heated shovels in the story for (laughs) changeling. Yes. So... Maybe it wasn't a a story at all. Maybe it was a true story. But when they were changelinged into, you know, good English society, they assimilated nicely. But for the dash of warning that every folktale really needs, the boy who wasn't as easy to transition into the English society ended up passing away. Whereas the girl thrived, went on, got married, had children. And that was pretty much what chicks were supposed to do at the end back then, right? <laughs> so, you know, there's a little bit of warning in there. I think it was interesting, too, how the boy died, the girl lived, because the boy, theoretically, if he had lived and prospered and got married and had children, then his name would also have lived on, whereas the girl's name would not have lived on. So it's like, oh, people are still around today that are descended from her, but, like, they don't yeah. know who they are, you know. 
And then the second theory is it's a historical true story, but the facts are a bit twisted. So around the time of the Green Children of Woolpit, there was an influx of Flemish immigrants into England. One area where many of these people settled was a place called Forum St. Martin, which is pretty close in name to St. Martin's Land. So one theory is that these were the children of Flemish immigrants whose parents had died, and then the children wandered you know, far afield from their village and ended up in the village of Woolpit somehow. And this would explain their different kind of clothes and their different language. But you would need to buy that nobody in this area of Woolpit would have been able to understand or even recognize the Flemish language. That's a bit of a stretch, I think, but it's possible. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't address the green skin. Still. Yeah, the green thing is, is what throwing me off. Like, And the fact that it disappeared after they kind of got assimilated into the other culture. Mm-hmm. That makes you think it's a story, right? Yeah, exactly. So, but was the green skin of this story, is that just an embellishment? Yeah. I looked into it and apparently there are reasons why people can have greenish skin. Okay. What are they? Eating green beans. I did hear a story somewhere that there was a guy who quit smoking, which is great, but he replaced smoking with eating carrots and he ate okay. so many carrots that his skin turned orange. <laughs> like his eyeballs got orange, like not orange, like he didn't look like Ernie, but. <laughs> Ernie. He's a regular Bugs Bunny, this guy. <laughs> yeah. But there are reasons why you can have a greenish tint to you. So probably everybody in the world has had a greenish hue if they're sick, if they're like stomach sick. Yeah. You, know, you get yeah. that pallor, right? Maybe they had eaten something gross in the woods or something, and they both had that greenish look to them when they found them. And then as they got healthier and better, it went away, you know. And maybe the greenness of it was just exaggerated. But there is actually a medical condition called hypochromic anemia, and that can sometimes cause a greenish hue to the skin. But again, it doesn't make you bright green like the Hulk. It's usually like green splotches or something like that. But the interesting thing about that hypochromic anemia is oftentimes people who had that will have an aversion to certain foods. And the green children of Woolpit in the story, they had aversion to eating basically everything except for green beans. So again, that could have been an exaggeration. Now, of course, we don't have any photographs uh, to show the level of greenness of these kids, right? It was almost a thousand years ago. Pre-iPhone. Pre-iPhone, unless we get into our chronovisor and go back and take a snap. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Shout out to the chronovisor. Yeah. But we do have photographic evidence of a different group of people whose skin was blue. Have you ever heard of the blue fugates of Kentucky? I have not. I've heard of the blue avatars from the Avatar movie. That's That's different. But uh, the blue fugates is a real family in Kentucky whose skin is blue. Like the blue man group type thing? Well, I don't know if they're shiny and bald, but and I'm not sure if they play PVC. The drums. But yeah, their skin is blue. Over several generations, a lot of people in that family have a rare blood condition and it makes their skin turn blue. But since about the 1960s, this condition can be treated very simply. To de-blueify. Yeah, you de-blueify. For real. Okay. My point is there have been real documented people in the world who had a different skin color other than the normal skin tones that you would see, like blue or green. So were the green children actually more bluish but mistaken for green? Maybe they also had the same rare blood condition as the blue fugates of Kentucky. It's been suggested that through most of human history, green and blue were not perceived as two different colors. Really? 
Yes, weird people study these kinds of things. And this guy, he looked through all these ancient languages and they have descriptions of many colors, but nowhere does blue show up until like the ancient Egyptians. And after that, it sort of spread throughout all the civilizations in the world that blue is a thing. So he found this group of people that live in Namibia. It's like an indigenous group of people in Namibia. And he did a test with them where he showed like a big circle on the screen of all different squares. Some of them are blue and some of them are green. And the people in this indigenous group did not decipher the difference between the blue and the green. It's all green. Sorry. Really, really weird. And how did he find that group of people? (laughs) You know, I think by the 12th century in England, they did have words for blue and green. It's an interesting thing to consider. Like maybe they had this documented blue skin syndrome and then the people just described it as green because there's not a big distinction between blue and green. Anyway, that's the maybe true, maybe fictional story of the green children of Woolpit. Interesting story. I mean, something happened. They took the time to write this story down for some reason. But where did they come from? So that was the green people of Woolpit. You've heard of lost tribes that have never met civilization before, right? Mm Mm-hmm. There's a story you told on a previous episode where this guy was going to introduce Christianity to this tribe. So he, he rode his boat and got offshore. They shot him and dragged him into the woods. And that was the end of him. That was the end of him. Yep. Well, this is the Canadian version of this. Kind of. Well, not really, but kind of. Is there a lot of apologizing? Yeah, that's right. It's the story of the Bush Boys of Vernon, B.C. So Vernon, B.C. is a town in British Columbia, obviously. It's a relatively small place. It's a city of about 40,000. But it's the kind of town where everyone kind of knows everyone, but you know, it's, you don't really know every single person of 40,000, but if you were to see somebody that looked at a place, you know, you kind of recognize, right? Mm-hmm. So in around September of 2003, there was these two kids that started showing up in the town of Vernon, BC. One looked like he was older in his 20s and one looked like he was in his teens. One thing that people noticed is that they were very skinny for their ages. They weren't bothering anybody. They weren't doing anything to just happen to just show up out of nowhere. There was a store in the town that was called the, and I probably will pronounce this wrong, but they call it the Kamalka General Store. And for whatever reason, they really liked the store and they hung out there a lot. The workers of the store noticed that they were like playing with the payphone all the time. And, and the way they described it was like they kind of didn't know what the payphone was, but they would just like take it off the hook and push the buttons. And I guess that kind of dates the story right away because you don't see payphones much anymore. When they went to the store, they would only buy fruit. There was a local woman in the town named Tammy. She recently moved to the town and she noticed all these boys and took a bit of an interest in them. So she uh, talked to some of the local people. It's kind of like it would be in Bear Arbitz or whatever. So you walk up to say, who owns them or who owns you, right? Who knit you? Yeah, who knit you? Nobody knew the answer to that. So she decided that she wanted to intervene and try and help. So what she did, she went to the store and she went to one of the workers and gave her a bunch of quarters and said, you know, next time you see these guys in the store, could you ask them to call me? So she went on. She never, ever thought she'd hear from these kids. But surprisingly, the next day, they called her. So they did know how to use the phone. Yeah, they did, apparently. Okay. So Tammy made arrangements to meet the boys at that location. So she figured her situation was dire, looking at them, and they looked like they were really hungry or that type of thing. So she bought a bunch of food, apples, chips, bars, everything she could think of that teenagers or or people around that age would eat. She kind of aged them, one at about 16, another at about 20. So they introduced themselves as brothers, and the names were Tom and Will Green. Will, the younger boy, didn't speak very much. They didn't share any much details with Tammy, but she didn't pry. She just wanted to help them get off the streets. So when she found out, they were actually living behind this store in a tent in the woods. Where do you think would be the first place to go if you're trying to help people that were in this situation? 
I would probably either go to the Department of Social Services. Yeah. Failing that, maybe the RCMP or yep. like first responder. Your first instinct was correct. So she decides she's going to take them to the government for help, social services. Okay. And when they asked the kids for IDs or for who they were, they looked confused and said they had no IDs. So the government guy was like, you know, if you got no IDs, there's really nothing I can do. I can't process anything. So be on your way. So afterwards, the boys, they got in the car with Tammy and started driving off. And they told her that they were raised in the wilderness in a cabin deep in the woods. And this is the first time they've dealt with other people in society besides their parents. Okay. Raised by whom? Their parents? Their parents. So their parents raised them in the woods. And like I said, they, they had no contact with anybody while they lived out in the, in the middle of the wilderness. They had never been to school, never been to the dentist, never seen TV, nothing like that. And their parents' names were... And this had to be a flag that would send somebody off saying, you know what, this story's a little bit off. Mary and Joseph was the parents' names. Jesus, Mary and Joseph in the woods behind the shop today. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so they said he came from a mountain town called Revelstoke, which is about an hour and a half away from Burnham, B.C. They said they told his parents they wanted to become vegetarians, and the parents threw him out because of this. So they left, got on the highway, and kind of walked and found a general store. He liked that store, and he started going in and buying fruit. They started getting a nickname of the Bush Boys because they grew up in the bush, right? Mm-hmm. And Tammy kind of started to get the community to rally around these Bush Boys. She reached out to a local lawyer. His name was Dale Commode. And he was trying to help up the legalities for them to get an ID. The local minister of parliament got involved with this. He heard about it. So he called up the mayor and said, you know, let's, let's try and help these guys out. So the mayor asked the police chief. Now, the police chief... I guess he has a bit more of a bullshit alarm than these other people. So he didn't kind of believe this. He said, you know what? These could be criminals. They could be runaways. They could be anybody. Listen to that. Take them at their word, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So he said, you know what? The town, you probably shouldn't take official position on this. But they did actually help out with these kids with money. Townspeople started volunteering to help. Like Good Samaritans were like buying them prepaid credit cards and giving them all this kind of stuff to help them. Got put up in a hotel. The Salvation Army donated clothes for them. As they get a little bit more familiar with everybody, they start telling a little bit more of their stories, and the story keeps changing a little bit. Yeah. People think, what the hell is going on here, right? So Tammy reached out to Patrick Allen. He was the local hostel keeper. So he owned a hostel, or he ran a hostel. However that works. I guess someone must own it, right? Otherwise, it's just an abandoned building that people go to. (laughs) That people live in. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So there was a hostel in town, and uh, she reached out to the local person, and he agreed to uh, let them stay there. And since the kids had no money, they said they'll kind of perform jobs around the hospital as a form of payment. Tammy started developing a bond with these bush boys. She checked with them almost daily, and she figured the hospital would help them integrate with society a little bit. And one thing she noticed, the kids had a very specific diet. They would only eat stuff that was from the ground and only eat stuff that was raw, basically fruit. If it was a root vegetable, they wouldn't eat it if there was a root involved. They would resist if they were ever offered any other foods besides these fruits. She said it was akin to some kind of food or eating disorder. She also noticed that the young boy was so thin, she was concerned that he needed to go see a doctor. And this guy was like so underweight, like the bones are protruding out, that type of thing. Yeah. But he would never consent to go. He said, no, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. She noticed too that the older brother seemed to be controlling the other brother. When he, like, he would never really speak. He kind of looked at the older brother for word. Like he wouldn't say anything until he looked at the older brother. And the older brother would kind of just give me okay whether he can speak or not, that type of thing. So the concern was that if, if they forced Will to go to the hospital, he would disappear and run back into the bush. So they didn't want to kind of scare him off, and that was the concern. But over time, Tammy be, did begin to earn their trust, and they would start telling them stuff about their lives. So they said that they learned to read through 
National Geographic magazines that her mother showed them. They said that their home in the woods had a water wheel for electricity, and the parents were going to town a few times for a year for supplies. They had no idea how the parents got the money or how they ever paid for any of these supplies. What were they plugging in? Well, you said they had a water wheel for electricity. Were they, were they listening to I the guess hockey for game? lights and heat, I guess. I don't know. Okay. You figured they have a wood stove. But the stories keep changing. Like, they're saying that they've never seen this, and all of a sudden said these to go rent movies every now and again. Huh. Eventually, immigration heard about the Bush Boys, and they started asking questions. Under immigration law, you can force a person to attend a hearing to get their background information. So that's exactly what they did. So Tammy and the lawyer decided they were going to get the boys to go to Revelstoke to talk to their parents to get their IDs. So they basically went to him and said, look, if you're coming with us now and we're going to talk to your parents or we're going to turn you over to the police. So they said, okay, let's go. They didn't want to do it first, but they finally agreed to do it. They drove out to Revelstoke, hour and a half drive, and they ended up coming to the beginning of this big log road. So the kids said, okay, pull over here. We're going to walk in. Um, we don't want you to come with us because that would scare our parents. They don't want to know the location of their shack in the woods, right? Mm-hmm. They're gone for a couple hours, and they come back, and they say that the parents wouldn't help. They're not, they're not going to give us no ID. It's not going to help with anything. They don't want nothing to do with us anymore. So at this point, Tammy's getting very nervous. She's kind of starting to question the story. They skipped out on a meeting from immigration to go basically steal the boys and, and drive them out to try to get their IDs to try and prove the story. And they couldn't produce anything. At this point, the lawyer that was with him gets a call from the office and said that the police are looking for them due to them skipping out to this meeting. I couldn't find any details if anything became of that or not, but obviously they're in a bit of hot water and the fact that they couldn't produce any information is starting to question things. One person that really questioned this story right from day one was a guy by the name of Henry Prose. He was a corporal for the RCMP, and he thought the story was bullshit right from day one. When he first saw these boys, people would report them saying, you know, there's these weird kids walking around town. But they weren't doing anything illegal, so he didn't really think too much of it. No laws and you can't be in a town. But because of so many calls, the RCMP ended up checking them out. So they went to the hostel, and they started talking to these guys, and he said the demeanor changed as soon as, as he saw the cop. Pro se would continuously ask these guys questions, and they'd answer, I don't know, I don't know. All they would ever give them was their names were Tom and Will Green, and they were from Revelstoke. Pro se ran the names, got nothing, called his RCMP out in Revelstoke, asked about them, and their RCMP said, no, we got no records of any kids with those names in this area. There's no hospital records, no tax records, no nothing. So Pro se doesn't know what to do, so he goes back and starts grilling the kids again, Ask why they don't come up with any searches, and they're beyond. We live in the bush. How would we come up with any searches? Pro se starts asking other people in the hospital about the kids. No one will talk to him, and uh, he'd even talk to Tammy in regards to the situation, asking, you know, why are you helping these boys? You know that the story's full of shit. No matter who he pushed, couldn't get any more information out of anybody regarding these kids. So he was making it a bit of his mission to try and figure out this mystery, and he would constantly question them. In terms of Tammy, what her plan was, she wanted to get these guys whatever assistance they could have so they can get on with their life and where they needed to be. At some point, the media gets word of the story, and they start reporting on it. On November 2nd, 2003, so again, they showed up in September, but in November, the first story comes out. Two half-star brothers arrive in Vernon and tell the story about growing up in the bush of B.C. cut off completely from civilization. It became an international story, and CNN, ABC started reaching out and started talking to people in the town about the story. I'm sure at this point, uh, Tammy's like, what in the Jesus have I got myself into? <laughs> it's getting too big now, this story. So as the story gained traction in town, we started to become divided. Some people were believing the, the Bush boys, and some people are saying, you know, this is a total bullshit story, right? And they're wondering why the boys were so protective of their parents after getting thrown out. And they always said, we want to protect their way of life. This is how they want to live, and we don't want to come between that. As you're telling the story in my head, I'm trying to guess what the real story of it is. Oh, we'll get there. Okay. 
So during all this media attention, the boys kind of did nothing. They just kind of sat in their hostel room. Tammy tried to get them to integrate a bit with society, but they really wouldn't do it. All she said, they were obsessed with fruit. They read about nutrition and they bought fruit and ate it. And the, the lawyer, Dan, he thought this was something that was really interesting. So he brought him out to a rural cottage that he owned. And he asked Tom to go gather some wood and cut it up. And he had no clue how to do that. So someone living in the bush, you figure, you know, one of the basic survival skills is collecting firewood and cutting it up, right? That's right, yes. So the more time they spent with these boys, the more the story seemed off. One of the things he said was they had a very strong vocabulary, much more than just words that you come in a National Geographic magazine, right? So how, why is that? Like they, they knew like slang words and things. Mm-hmm. Like they're saying, this is sus, for example. <laughs> they were ahead of their time. They're saying they had like sunglasses. They had one amount of Ray-Ban sunglasses that he was wearing. Like, you know, how, where would he get these? That type of thing. Yeah. Well, it is the woods in B.C. From what I That's learned right. from previous stories, there's all kinds of shit in the woods in B.C. And the story kept changing a little bit every time. All of a sudden, they had access to a TV and they had a VCR. And they did go into town a few times a year renting movies and that type of thing. Media eventually began losing interest in the story because it was no longer a story. But, you know, the last tribe of British Columbia started turning into... You know, this is probably a bullshit story, so it kind of died off. Okay. So several months went by with these kids living in this hostel and people looking after them and paying for their stuff and, and everything else. Tammy was starting to get frustrated. She was doing everything she could to help. They weren't trying to help themselves at all. They were just taking all these handouts. But no matter what the situation was, it was clear and obvious that the young boy needed help. He was getting skinnier by the day, losing weight by the day, only eating fruit, and the concern was eventually he was going to die. Okay. In Canada, there's something called the Mental Health Act, where if someone's considered in danger to himself, an officer can come in and actually intervene on that person's behalf. So they finally decided, we got to do this. We got to get this guy medical help, whether he's going to agree to it or not. So in March, uh, Will was walking from the hospital to the nature store to get fruit. And after he buys fruit, Pro Se grabs him and takes him into custody and immediately he's taken to a hospital. And he didn't put up any fight or nothing like that. He just kind of went to him and said, look, I got to take you right to the hospital. And he just kind of went with the RCMP officer. This is the most Canadian part of this story. Whether you like it or not, <laughs> you're getting your free health care. So uh, Will told the doctors that he was a fruititarian and would only eat fruit. The doctors diagnosed him with oxytheria, which is basically, it's not anorexia, it's an eating disorder, but it's a fear of food. Oh. So they came up with kind of a balanced diet to properly nourish Will so that he can kind of gain some weight. Many attention did die down for the story after, you know, people started saying, you know, maybe it's not true. Uh, there's a CBC magazine show called Disclosure. It's like kind of like a 60 Minutes type of thing. But they decided they wanted to do a story about the Bush Boys. The producer, a guy by the name of Timothy Sawa, traveled from Winnipeg to Vernon to try and convince Tom to do an on-air interview. So Tom was reluctant to do it at first, but eventually agrees to do so. The way Timothy uh, got him to do it was he played the angle that Tom and Will needed IDs in order to be able to work and all that kind of stuff. And the TV show might give them the media exposure they need to get these IDs. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So during the interview, Tom explained the whole story about living in the woods. The parents did not wish to have their way of life interrupted, but they wanted to see the rest of the world. So that's why they kind of ventured out. But they only went to the one town. <laughs> that's right. Okay, anyway. Will said that he's been in touch with the parents since being in Vernon, and the interviewer really went after him over this, basically saying, how come your parents won't get involved knowing that their younger son is in the hospital and close to death? So Tom didn't have a good answer to this. And he said the doctors didn't know that he was going to die for sure, but you could tell that he was kind of agitated by this question. Mm-hmm. Will, who was in the hospital, was not allowed to be interviewed due to hospital rules, but they did let Tom come in and talk to him quickly with a camera. Not long after this piece aired, Timothy Sawa received an email from somebody who saw the show saying that the Bush Boys 
were recognized by him, and he thinks that is his brother who's missing. <gasps> Basically, what happened here was that Pro Se, the RCMP guy who was seriously doubted the story, he remembers they end up saying that their parents were originally from California, and he also said that their grandfather still lived there too. Their parents would be the age of the Vietnam War, so it would be implausible to think that they moved to Canada to be draft dodgers, right? Okay. He reached out to a newspaper called the San Francisco Chronicle and asked if he knew anything about it. So the writer who heard about it loved the story and said, I'm going to write about this for the paper. Two days after the CBC show Disclosure aired, the paper ran the story. The story proved popular, so the local 6 o'clock news referenced it and showed a few stills from the Disclosure. A friend of the family saw that on the news, and that's how they got discovered. So it turns out that Tom and Will Green are not bush boys that grew up in the wilderness raised by Mary and Joseph Green. They were actually Kyle and Rowan Horn, two suburban kids from Rosedale, California, just outside of Sacramento. Disclosure happened to still be in town when this all came to light, since so this happened a couple days later. They had one more episode to film for that season, but they scrapped that original finale and they went with this story instead. Uh, the parents were flown to Vernon, B.C., and the reunion was all filmed for the show. So Tammy, the Mother Lake figure who helped the boys out so much, only found out the truth while she was being filmed for the show. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, she felt very duped. She felt very embarrassed. Yeah. Very used, that type of thing, right? Uh, the boys were eventually reunited with their parents. Kyle was sent back to the USA, but Will was too sick to travel, and he would go back once he was deemed medically fit because he was still in the hospital trying to gain weight because he was that close to death from his fruit diet. The boys were never formally charged for anything during this entire seven-month ordeal, but the one thing the people of Vernon didn't appreciate was that they seemed to show no remorse for what they did and no appreciation for everything that the people of Vernon did to help these people out. When Rowan was cleared to return to the States, he needed to be transported from the hospital to the airport, so the RCMP officer Pro Se offered to drive him up. During the trip, he said that Rowan barely spoke, and when he got to the airport, he exited the vehicle, walked to the plane, no thank you, he didn't even look back, he just, just got out and just walked onto the plane. What the hell? So, how do these boys make it all the way from California to B.C.? It all started when Rowan got into a bike accident when he was nine years old. He was on a pedal bike. He was riding around in, in his uh, apartment complex, and he hit a speed bump and fell off, and then he ruptured his spleen. The injury was so bad he had to get his spleen removed. The doctors came and told him that you still have a, a uh, you know, you live a full life without a spleen, but your immune system might be a little bit compromised. And that started messing with his mind, and he thought, oh, I need to be extra healthy. He really had to watch what he's eating. The doctor wanted to give him pills to help with it. Now, his parents were a bit of conspiracy theorists, believe it or not. And because so, he didn't believe in the doctors and the pills. Instead, he figured he would study the kind of diets that he could have in order to be healthy. Uh-huh. So around the age of 12 or 13, he started developing severe acne. So again, he started doing more internet research on how to cure teenage acne. And uh, he started going on all these crazy fruit diets and starving himself. He figured if he ate the right thing, that the acne would go away. And it got to the point where child services got involved and said they're going to take him away to make him get healthy. So Rowan didn't like that, so he ran away. Kyle, meanwhile, was 23 and doing nothing with his life. His parents wanted to move out and get a job, but somehow Kyle convinced him that he needed to take a trip to Canada to find himself. So his parents were like, all right, best guy, and here's some camping gear and his 500 bucks to have at her. At this point, Rowan was after running away. He went back to his brother and basically said that he, he was going to Canada so he wanted to take him with him because he didn't want to go to get arrested and be brought to this crazy hospital, right? Wow. So they had their cousin drive him to the border. They managed to get out before and walk across the border undetected. And this is post 9-11 too, right? So I don't know how they managed to do this, but they uh, managed to get across the border undetected. So they hitchhiked, made it to Vernon, B.C., and then they fell in love with the fruit store. So they pitched the tent outside and they burned through the 500 bucks his parents gave them. And they were at the point where they had no money left. And they figured, oh, we're going to have to go home. 
And that's when they got the message from the storekeeper that someone named Tammy wanted to speak to them. <gasps> so they were that close to leaving and giving up on their dream or running away and all that. So when they found out this, they said, okay, we need to come up with a story. They said, okay, what are we going to call ourselves? So they went with Tom Green because of the comedian Tom Green. And they figured that's something they'd be able to remember. And for the parents, well, they said, oh, Mary and Joseph. I'm going to forget that. Jesus' parents. <laughs> and that's how it all said. Oh, my God. And they were concerned that they were going to mess up the story. So Kyle or Will uh, said, you know what? I'll do most of the talking. So you just kind of follow my lead. And that's why the brother never said much. Well, it was never like a uh, he was trying to control him or anything like that. That's just how he kind of worked the story. Try and keep everything straight. Right. That's how it went. So like I said, they were that close to giving up until uh, a good Samaritan tried to help him. And, and they ended up getting seven months before he finally got discovered. One nice thing about this is that Rowan did end up sending Tammy an email afterwards, basically thanking her for saving his life, which I thought was nice. And this story also includes a weird YouTube channel about Rowan. He's come to the decision in his life that he can live forever. And he had this YouTube channel about how he can live forever. We'll save those parts of the story for another time. Holy cow. As you were telling it, I'm like, maybe they were in a cult. Maybe they killed their parents in the woods, and that's why they didn't want anyone to go there. I was thinking about all these different kinds of things. But I didn't think it would be like, no, there are just kids from California who kind of got kicked out slash ran away from their parents to go on a quest to eat fruit from a particular store in British Columbia. <laughs> Pretty much. A lot of this information I got from a, a podcast called Wild Boys. Okay. And I highly recommend that you listen to that. If you enjoy that story, you should check it out. It's like a nine-part series. But yeah, that's the story to BC Beach Boys. It's a very interesting story. That's a crazy story. What yeah. a bunch of dicks. Yeah, basically, yeah. Bunch of fellows that ran away from their problems, and then they lived off the goodwill of a town for seven months. There you have it. Weird stories about feral people. Or maybe feral, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> the Green Children of Woolpit. To me, it sounds more like a fairy tale. Yeah, it's a folklore story more than anything, yeah. Right. And like all good stories, as we've said before, there's probably an element of truth in there. The Bush Boys of BC is just, it deflates my belief in humanity <laughs> slash inflates it. What do you think? Do you think the green children are reverse fairies? Of course. Of course. <laughs> no, like you said, I, I think it's one of those stories that got passed, you know, in, in the 900 years. It's morphed a little bit from what actually happened versus uh, what the story is now. But the Bush Boys, you know, that's this kids that ran away and hit the jackpot basically for seven months and got looked after. Not many successful runaway stories, I don't think, but uh, they lived a pretty good seven-month run on land before they finally had all can crash down. What a bunch of dicks. Anyway, do you, the listeners, think that the BC Bush Boys were a bunch of dicks? <laughs> Let us know. You can share your ideas with us at somewerepodcast at gmail.com. Or on the Twitter at somewerepod. Or at our website, somewerepodcast.com. If you already haven't done so, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen so you'll never miss an episode. If you've enjoyed this episode and you want to help us out, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen so others can discover us. And don't be afraid to tell a friend about the Some Weird Podcast. And these stories are some weird by... Some Weird. How did they explain their clothes? Because if they only lived in the woods... The bearskins. Well, <laughs> they would have been wearing fur gitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they would have had to have like homemade clothes or something, right? Yeah. Well, again, they said that the parents went to town once a year for supplies. So the, the big Costco run. <laughs> it's like babe and going to the Costco.